Hello, Criminal Injustice listeners. This is your producer, Josh. David is away from the microphone for a moment because, as you may have heard, if you caught our episode last week, uh, Criminal Injustice is taking a very brief, the briefest of uh, summer holiday breaks. Normally, we take a few weeks off uh, sometime around the middle of the summer. This time, we're doing a little bit early, and we're shortening the duration. Uh, We are going to be back with new episodes starting on July 2nd. Until then, we're playing a couple of our favorite shows from this past season. Today, it's a rerun of our episode from January 22nd, 2019. This is number 96, entitled Policing While Black. This is David's conversation with Matthew Horace, the author of the memoir The Black and the Blue. This is the story about Mr. Horace's uh, career in law enforcement as an African-American man. Uh, the complexity and the difficulty and the, sometimes the conflict that that entails. It's a fascinating story, and it's a great episode. We hope you will enjoy it. If you missed it last time, this will be new to you. If you caught it before, hope you will enjoy it a second time around. We'll have another rerun next Tuesday. We may have a few bonus episodes to drop in uh, here and there over the intervening weeks as uh, as news breaks, and we find ourselves able to respond. Other than that, though, we are on hiatus effective until July 2nd when we return with new episodes. Uh, Keep an eye on our website at criminalinjusticepodcast.com and on our Facebook. A great way to get in touch with us with your questions and your feedback. Another is to leave a voicemail at 412-407-3389. That is our Ask Dave hotline where you can ask your questions about criminal justice, the law, the legal system, uh, stories you might have heard in the news. It's 412-407-3389. Or you can uh, submit your question via the form on our website. Again, it's at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Please enjoy this episode, number 96. Black Americans say that they often face difficulties with police that whites don't experience. Extra scrutiny, harassment, profiling, even violence. Police say they have a difficult job that others just don't understand. So what is it like to be both black and a police officer? Reconciling two distinct identities, that's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your host and resident criminal justice geek, back with you to talk about our confusing and often difficult criminal justice system. And still so glad for that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. It's no secret that in America today, as an overall matter, black people get treated differently by police than white people. We can look at all kinds of data to know this, whether it's traffic stops or stops and frisks, searches of people or their cars, or just the way that research has shown that police talk to civilians – All of these things tell us that what black people have said forever is true. They face a different type of policing than the rest of us do. And there are, of course, even worse things that sometimes happen. In the past, police enforced unjust segregation laws in the South. And even now, police using force and acting brutally, more frequently against black people and in black communities. And, of course, then the greater likelihood of dying unarmed in a police shooting if you are black than if you are white and unarmed. 
In all my years of research in which I've interviewed hundreds of people for my books and talked with thousands of others about these topics, I have yet to meet a parent of a black male teenager who has not had the talk with that child about how to act when, not if, but when, the police stop them. They tell their children very specifically exactly how to act, what to say and not say, how to react even to terrible kinds of provocations, never to argue because they know that any such encounter can end very badly, even, God forbid, in death with a wrong move or a uh, an ill-chosen word. And I have yet to meet a white parent who has ever had a similar talk with his or her kids. Sure, I told my own son to be respectful, to have his license and registration ready to hand over, but never once did I find myself giving what were effectively detailed survival instructions. I want you to hear something. This is a brief excerpt from a video made by an outfit called Jubilee Media. It's called Dear Child, and it consists of snippets of black parents speaking into the camera, delivering that very talk that they gave to their children. You'll hear several parents' voices. The music in the background is from the video itself. Take a listen. If you are approached by police, just stay calm. Don't fight back. Don't give any rebuttals. You have to understand, if you want to stay alive, you have to do what they say. Because it could be the difference between me seeing you again and not seeing you again. I challenge anyone to watch that and not feel moved. We'll put a link to it up on our website. So with all of that, it seems unsurprising that police forces have for years had a very tough time recruiting blacks to join police departments. Who would want to join a profession that many young people will have heard or even experienced firsthand, uh, a profession that acts in ways that specifically target people like you or your family members for abuse? Even if it's not that common, it is common in certain communities. And that's the point. And yet there are black officers in lots of police departments. In some police departments, many black officers. And we know police officers have their own very close culture, their own very specific identity. For them, only fellow officers know what the difficult and dangerous job is like. Only they can understand, and others should just not comment or criticize. For police, there's the white race, the black race, there are other races, and then there's the blue race. That is an actual quote, something said to me the very first time I interviewed a black police officer for one of my books. So the question arises, in a society in which the identities black person, particularly a black man, and police officer seem very much opposed, with the former so often feeling targeted by the latter, how does one person occupy both identities? What is that like? What are the consequences? Matthew Horace is a law enforcement and security expert and analyst. He's senior crisis manager and contributor to the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and other media outlets. Mr. Horace began his career 
as an officer in the police department in Arlington, Virginia, and eventually joined the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, where he ascended to that agency's most senior ranks. He's run just about every kind of law enforcement operation you can think of, from investigations of murders, other violent crimes, to organized crime, to terrorist bombing investigations, you name it. He is past president of the National Association of Black Law Enforcement Executives and 100 Black Men of New Jersey. Along with Ron Harris, he's the author of The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement published in 2018 by Hachette. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Matt Horace, welcome to Criminal Injustice. David, good afternoon, and thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. You know, the first sentence of your book is, I am a cop. And then just a few paragraphs later, you also say, but I am also a male black, inherently viewed as suspicious and dangerous. Can you really be both of those things? Well, I think, I think we are both of those things. Any of us that wear the badge, uh, as I did and many others do, uh, that work on both sides of the line, uh, we are, in fact, both. And in many cases, as I've said repeatedly, sometimes you can't be black enough and sometimes you can't be blue enough. But we try the best we can to contribute in a meaningful way. So what happens when you can't be black enough or blue enough? Give us an example. Well, an example is uh, from the time you first start on the job, you're trying to elicit and gain the trust of the community uh, that you grew up in in many cases and that you're a part of. And then on the same token, you go to work and you're trying to elicit and get the trust and gain the trust of the people you work with day in and day out. And there are so many complexities to these relationships between community and police on so many different levels. It makes it a challenge at times because you want trust from all sides of the house so that you can operate and execute on both sides of the house. And at many times it becomes very challenging. So gaining that trust, that must be really tough, and yet it's core to what police do. Uh, Tell us uh, an example of a time that you had to work to gain trust with uh, people in the African-American community, though you yourself are a member of that community. Right. Well, I mean, as a patrolman, you're having interactions with people every day, and you're hoping that what you represent to them is something that will help them navigate that trust barrier but many times it doesn't you know i've had dozens if not hundreds of times uh when i'm approaching people on the street and trying to get information or speak to them and they're distrustful of me because i am in uniform so you have that barrier up and and when you see conditions like that exist in chicago right now with the high murder rate and the unsolved murder rate you know that happens because uh communities by and large don't trust police enough to give information uh, and are afraid of police in many ways and what they'll do with the information. So in order to do our jobs, we have to have an atmosphere and condition to trust. And it's very, very difficult. And that's happened to me, like I say, dozens, if not hundreds of times. So you try to overcome that by convincing people that you understand the conditions as they are. You know, in other words, I grew up here. I understand how you may view me, but give me an opportunity to earn your trust and try to make this situation better. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes, even when you have to arrest people or things, things that are a little bit out of hand, you know, uh, Michael Harrison, who's the uh, superintendent down at New Orleans Police, says this so well, that a negative experience doesn't have to be a negative outcome. So I think, you know, me and people like me, oftentimes throughout our careers, we try to get to a place where situations have a positive outcome, even if they don't have, you know, a positive experience. So give us an example of 
uh, being involved in what would be a negative experience, something like getting arrested, but it not being a negative outcome for the person you were arresting. What, what, tell us a story about that. Well, I mean, you could use an example of having someone's mother's house or grandmother's house, which I've done dozens of times, uh, with an arrest warrant for someone and having to arrest you know, their, their son or their grandson. And as guarded as people are, what you want is you want to do it safely and you want everyone to understand you're going to do the best you can to make sure that their person is treated fairly. So, I mean, I've done that dozens of times. And, you know, you had to have that discussion with people on the front end that you don't want things to go bad. So you are taking that extra step to communicate with them, to introduce yourself, to tell them that you understand it's frightening, there's some uh, reticence, but you're going to do the best you can to make sure that their person, their loved one, feels like they're being treated fairly by the system. And it's very difficult given what people see day in and day out. So you are living on both sides of this existence at the same time. That's a very interesting phrase that you used in your book. You come at it from both sides. Uh, you're that, uh, uh, you're the, that man with the, with the finger on the officer's gun. That's you uh, uh, trying to decide what to do in that split second. And you're also the person it might be pointed at in another situation. So how do you, as a police officer, cope with that? Uh, on a personal level, how do you cope with that? Well, it's, it's very difficult. I think one of the things that helped me throughout my career has been always communicating with others that are similarly situated. Because what happens is you find that these conditions aren't isolated, but here that this goes on in other cities and towns and with other organizations. It kind of lets you know that the problem or the challenge is more than just an isolated incident in Iowa or Providence or Oakland. But it's really a national problem because, you know, law enforcement is a people business. So if you can't get the people element of it straight, then you're always going to have those challenges. And that's what we try to point out in the book. Uh, and as you know, having read the book, the book is far from anti-cops. It's actually supportive of policing. Absolutely. I would to, agree with you. We're trying to get, we're trying to get some, some change, some positive change. So do we have more positive outcomes? So how do you do it? Um, you speak to others, maybe people who are your peers or in other departments who are facing this same kind of double-sided existence. Tell us what that's like inside you. Right. Well, you know, it's, let's face it. When you're, when you're working with someone one second and you're relying on them for your very life, right, in a very hostile, very dangerous situation, and the next second they're uttering – a racial slur or something truly offensive is very, is very hurtful. So within organizations, there are mechanisms that you can use, like complaint processes and things like that. But once you do that, many times you're not trusted by your peers because, as you know, a part of our culture is not to, you know, snitch on each other, not to tell on each other. Right. Not to, not to, and it's a cultural, it's a very cultural nuance, you know, and uh, it's one of those things we're trying to overcome. But many uh, law enforcement leaders, like Chief Harrison, uh, down in New Orleans, they've overcome that by instituting incentive programs where officers are incentivized by, you know, being honest and candid and telling the truth and not keep, keeping that blue wall of silence up. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned uh, somebody saying hurtful. There's a story in your book about you being paired up with an agent and you're driving in a car and he uses, uh, you know, the, the worst and most basic racial slur for black people that there is without really thinking about it. And he kind of realizes that he did it after it comes out of his mouth and you're sitting next to him. How did you feel in that moment and what did you do? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, that's as, as you just described, what else could he have said that could have been worse? 
Right. right? So, you know, there's anger, there's frustration, there's fear, there's hurt, and all those things. I mean, you know, if we keep this to a very basic human level, no one should not be able to understand how someone will be hurt by that. But at that time, you're just wondering, how do I approach this in a way that's meaningful, that has a positive outcome, hopefully, but you let the person know um, exactly how you feel. Now, a lot of my colleagues that I talk to day in and day out, they've had these same things happen. As a matter of fact, I was in a speech recently, and I asked a question. Uh, I was uh, giving a speech, and I asked a question to the room. How many people in this room have heard um, white agents use racial slurs? And almost 300 people in the room, probably 275, raised their hand. The overwhelming majority. The overwhelming majority. So that tells you, right, that this issue is not, you know, one bad apple or one bad cop or one city. It's not a southern issue. It's not a western issue. It's not a border issue. It's a national issue, and if you look at it, uh, the Bergen County Sheriff in New York's largest right mm-hmm. just resigned recently over using racial slurs and insensitive comments. And I know that sheriff; I worked with him when I was in New Jersey. Yeah, right. And then, and if you use North and South and East and West in the book in the epilogue, we talk about Chief Frank Frank Nucera down in Bordentown, New Jersey, who was under indictment and arrested by the FBI for that exact same thing. So, what we want people to understand, right? is that this is not a 60s, 70s, 80s thing. This is a now thing. And without complete police reform in the United States and us looking at and being able to have these discussions, we're never going to get to a place where we can overcome it. Yeah. That would be my fear. Yes. So, you know, a lot of stories in your book, you have a number of little stories that come almost verbatim from other police officers. Very well chosen, by the way, uh, the stories. And um, uh, a lot of them tell... Uh, stories about their initial impressions or experiences with police officers when they were young, and very few of them are positive, I have to say. What were your first experiences with police officers in your young life? What was that like? Well, you know, I, I point out in the book in a number of areas that I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia was a cop town, right? And for so many years, it's one of those cop culture towns. Frank Rizzo. But Frank Rizzo, uh, you know, a high school dropout. Became the police chief, and then the mayor, the mayor, and the mayor. Right? Mm-hmm. There was a, there was a history in Philadelphia of police abuse, but you know, growing up the way I grew up, my parents encouraged me to stay away from the police at all measure. They didn't want you know just stay away from the police. Stay away. You do yours. Stay away. Don't be involved. Don't get involved. Stay out of their crosshairs. Right? And and as you as you probably read in the book, I had an incident in college where I was attacked by a Philadelphia police canine. So that's right. These, these kinds of things don't go to help the way you look at police broadly. But, you know, in that case, I never let that incident sort of um, sour me in a way that I became anti-police. I I actually felt that becoming a part of the solution was better than being a part of the problem. Well, that's so interesting. You know, again, here we are. We have two different identities, one of which you start off in in your college years with this terrible experience with a police dog being sicked on you for nothing at all, and yet somehow you're able to live with that enough to say, no, this is something I want to do. This is a field I want to work in. What's that internal struggle like for you? Well, well, I tell you what, I never once stopped to say, because this happened to me, therefore I don't want to represent what I saw. Not once did I ever do that. That probably has more to do with my sense of drive and character. However, I do know that growing up in the community I grew up in, there were many, many, many people that I can think of and that would never have ever taken that lead because their experiences 
not allow them to take that step to get involved with law enforcement. Right. And, so, you know, I, and, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, I don't blame people for not wanting to get involved based on some of the things that they see in here and even based on some of the things that we're seeing in our, in our own country right now. I, I don't blame people for saying, I don't want to represent that. Right. Um, but if nobody does it, then we're not going to have anybody at the table. So we need good people to promote change. So you find a way to bring these identities together, and it seems to me like you're saying it's about changing things and showing that we can do better. Absolutely. And, you know, while you're in the profession, you know, one step at a time, one person at a time. You know, a really good friend of mine, uh, one, of, one of my colleagues who was a partner of mine, who happened to be white, you know, he called me, and I know him like a brother. I know him very close. He read the book, and, you know, when he got done reading, he called me. And he said, you know, he said, Matt, I, I read this book from front to cover. And he said, he says, I'm just shocked. He said, and, and he says, I'm sick. He said, I'm sick to my stomach. And I said, well, I need to know a little bit more about how you feel, because as I run around the country doing interviews, that might help me to be able to respond to other interviewers a little better. So I said, why do you feel sick? And he said, you know, for as worldly as I thought I was, after reading this book, I'm shocked at how much I didn't know. So my sense is that other people, and I have heard this from other people, when they read the book and they say, I never heard about those issues in New Orleans, or I was unaware of Chicago. I heard about McQuan McDonald, but I was unaware of everything else you pointed out. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe if we can get people just understanding that certain communities see these behaviors that we write about in the book, and therefore their perspective on law enforcement broadly is very different, and therein lies the challenge. Some communities see police as guardians. And, and helpers. Mm-hmm. Poli- and helpers. And some communities see police as warriors. But yet you still have the FOP coming out two weeks ago in response to the Colin Kaepernick. Issue, That's saying, the fraternal order of police. Mm-hmm. Right. You still have them saying, we don't believe that there's a problem with race in the United States with policing. And quite frankly, uh, the difference between the FOP and black organizations is that black organizations only want black officers but the FOP is inclusive of everyone. And, you know, that may be true on the surface, but if there had ever been a need, if there had ever, if there had not been a need for African-Americans and women and Hispanics and Asians to develop their own organizations, then, then it, none of these organizations would have splintered out of the FOP or the National Police Association. So there is a, there is somewhat of a lack of candor and it's somewhat, um, it's just, it's not truthful. Yeah. You know, I, I suggest that we we take what you said about your friend calling you and let's let's take that as a challenge. If you had uh, somebody sitting in front of you had not read the book um, and uh, they asked you, what is it like to be a black man, a civilian interacting with the police? How would you explain it? What is that like for a civilian? Right. Well, you know, our research showed that uh, in many ways, and other research has shown that in large part, and I'll give you an example, when when white Americans broadly see a police officer stopping someone and someone's outside of the car and braced on the car or in handcuffs, they, they believe automatically that the person's done something wrong, right? That's just the belief. Yes. African Americans, based on their own perceptions and experiences, want to know what's going on and what the person's done, Right. Because there's this belief that if police are involved and they're doing an action, that it's the right action. And when you look at things like Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina. This is the man who was running away and was shot in the back. Right. And and as you know, people have said repeatedly, and they've said to us, if I had not seen that on video, 
I would not have believed it if someone told me. So there is a disconnect between what people believe, what they want to believe, and what we know to be true. Now, if people can't believe a simple story like that, right, Yes. you have to ask yourself, what is in their psyche and what is in their minds that tells them that that can't be true? And, and, and the bottom line is if it's coming from me or someone else or you or someone that has credibility, why not believe it, right? So to your point, and what I've been asking audiences to do is ask their minority friends. Just ask people you know and love and trust yes. and believe in. People who you work with every day, you know them, you trust them, you promote them, you do anything for them. Ask them what have been your experiences. And, and then when they tell you, believe them. Believe what, they tell, what they're telling you is true. So if, if, if somebody came to you and said, what have your experiences been as a civilian, a person in civilian clothes, what would you tell that person? Oh, I tell them I had a couple of negative experiences as a, as a youth and as a teen, and as a uh, matriculating uh, collegiate you know, student athlete. I tell them that uh, I've been stopped myself and haven't been treated kindly at times until I displayed my credentials and then they figured out that I was actually law enforcement. But the reality is when that happens, you know, law enforcement tends to stick together and you, you tend to get treated a, a, a little bit better. However, why did, it have, why did I have to show you a badge for you to treat me with some level of uh, decency and compassion and respect? And it, it's interesting how that happens. You know, you show people a badge and the first thing they say is, oh, why didn't you show me first? You know, <laughs> well, well, I could have or maybe I didn't. And maybe I didn't want to be obnoxious. Maybe I didn't want to seem forceful. Maybe I just wanted to kind of, you know, let it flow as the conversation flows. But had I not had the badge, then what how would I have been treated? How would I have been treated? So that question always remains. Again, and this is not about all police officers. This is about some. But as you know, the 80-20 rule, 20 people, 20 percent of people in any given number can create a lot of habit. Yep. Yep, absolutely. You know, uh, having interviewed uh, hundreds of people over the years uh, and, you know, discussed these issues with many thousands more in all kinds of contexts, I have not come across a black parent who has not had what's called the talk with their male children about when they're going to get stopped by police. How do you behave in order to survive? Um, right. And, uh, you know, this is just uh, viewed by them as required for survival, uh, sure. that it would be kind of parental malpractice not to do it. Did your parents do this with you? You've talked a little bit about them. And have you done it if you have your own kids? Have you done it with them? Oh, by all means. I mean, I've done it with both of my children and my parents did it with me all the time. And, you know, it's interesting that you, you bring it up because that is requ- that's almost like required reading. Right. That's a required absolutely in black in black homes. And it's a very important one, because what you don't want is you don't want any misinterpretation of conditions. So and what I mean by that is I don't want my son to make any move or do anything that's going to give a police officer uh, a reason to escalate things, because we know that when that happens, uh, disastrous consequences can evolve in very quickly. And what we also know and we've seen based on um, the climate that when these disastrous situations occur, there may be uh, no follow-up or there may be nowhere for the family to go, especially when people end up getting really seriously hurt or killed. Because in in a lot of these cases, officers are being acquitted at trial, not being indicted or not being pursued. No accountability. Or no accountability. And that's what we're really calling for. We're calling for police departments to do the right thing. When When you see wrong, you know wrong. 
So, you know, have conditions in place to deal with it. Right. You know, I'm just thinking it must be really hard for you as an individual to have this kind of talk. Because on the one hand, as you say, it's required. You've just got to see to it that your children are safe in any situation. On the other, you're telling them about being safe from people on your team. You know, I mean, that's just got to be really hard. Again, it's those two identities. Can you talk about that? Well, think about this for a minute. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to appeal to anyone who's listening sense of humanity. Everyone I know who's had one of this experience has happened to them. And it's the same with me. You're 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 on an operation. You're out, you know, on a arrest or a search warrant. And then some law enforcement person uses a racial slur. And, and the first thing they say is, oh, but I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about them. Well, how condescending yes. is that, right? Mm-hmm. And and I and I think people don't even realize half the time what what that does to erode your sense of self and trust. And now you're coming to work the next day. You're like, hey, wait a minute! It can't you can't have it both ways. You can't call someone the N word and then say, but but I didn't mean you, right? But it happens, and it happens more than people realize even today. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break here. We're on Criminal Injustice with Matthew Horace, the author of a great new book, The Black and the Blue. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hi, David Harris with you here on Criminal Injustice, and we're back with Matthew Horace. You may have seen him on CNN or other places. He's the author of a great new book called The Black and the Blue, and we've been discussing what it's like to be both black male and police. Uh, and uh, we've had some really lively exchanges here. You know, you, you describe one experience here, Matt, of of speaking with somebody you knew in the NYPD, a high-ranking uh, person in the NYPD, and you told him that as you were starting to write the book, uh, you would want African-Americans to understand how difficult and dangerous this job of being a police officer is. And your friend answered you in a very interesting way. He said, you know, black people know how hard the job is. What they don't understand is that we, the police, are never wrong. And that seems right. to me that goes right along with that comment you made before the break. What about that? What, what, what did that leave you feeling? Well, it left, me, it left me feeling like thinking about how I came onto the job. And, you know, when you first come on, again, a culture issue, and the person who's training you says, hey, remember that what happens in the car stays in the car. And then you go to the police academy. At the police academy, they come and they write on the board, CYA, right? So C-Y-A. it's all about making sure that you don't end up in a bad place. So, you know, whatever you do, make sure you can articulate it. Whatever action you take, make sure you can explain it. But at the end of the day, something you really just can't explain. Some things are just, some things are just bad on the surface. And, and you know what? Police officers do make mistakes. So when we make a mistake, but, you know, chiefs and administrators are afraid to admit it because of liability, and they don't want to say, hey, this was dead wrong, and we're going to investigate it. It looks wrong to me. It is wrong, because they don't want that to be used against them, you know, in another way in some later later hearing or something like that. So um, it's just, again, many of these things are cultural, but, you know, I believe and many believe that we can get over these cultural nuances to just make the world a better place to live for everyone. So let's dig into it this way. Um, If you were approached by a young police officer, an African-American police officer, and that person said to you that he or she had been 
uh, in, a, in a police car with his or her partner and a racial slur got used. And, and the young officer says to you, what should I do about this? It made me really uncomfortable and angry. What's the right path to take? What would you say? Well, I'd say two things. Number one, make sure you have a discussion with the uh, officer, the uh, colleague, but also make sure you take it to your supervisor. And, he, and here's the reason why. Because it might not be an isolated incident, and you might find that the person has been counseled about that incident, incident, similar incidents in the past, or you might find that there's a pattern of behavior like this that the department wants to know. By not bringing it forward, you allow the behavior to continue. And many departments and many agencies have disciplinary processes that when you bring those things forward, they're investigated by internal affairs uh, and it's treated as a disciplinary issue. People might be given days off or a warning or a reprimand. Listen, behavior doesn't change, right? unless conditions change, and conditions change, don't change unless you get to the truth. And so the young person says to you, but, but Matt, uh, if I do that, isn't that going to hurt my career? And Am I going to be known as a snitch or a rat or something? Well, well, you run the risk of that happening. But let's face it, what happens, to the, what happens to the situation where somebody else hears it and not just you? And then you don't take it. And then people come to you later and say, did you hear it? And if you did hear it, why didn't you report it? So there's, there's that element of holding each other accountable as well. Absolutely. So lately we've seen a lot of these videos of police called, usually by white people, for seemingly little or no reason, uh, called on black people in public spaces. The Philadelphia Starbucks barbecuing in the park in Oakland, a black student uh, taking a nap in her dorm room, uh, common area at Yale. Now when you see this sort of thing, uh, who do you, I mean? Who do you identify with in the incident? Is it the black civilian? Is it the police officer? Where does where does your mind go when you see something like the black Starbucks thing? Well, you know that was an incident uh, that was uh, polarized both nationally and internationally. Absolutely. Uh, ha- having grown up in Philadelphia, I, it held a very special place in my heart. But you know, this goes to a point we make in the book about policies that drive behavior, and, and let me tell you what I'm what I mean by that. Well, Starbucks had that policy, right, uh, internally at that store. Mm-hmm. So when they called the police, unfortunately, whether it was me responding or someone else responding, whether it was three black officers or three white officers, if I go to any business in the world and the business owner says, I do not want these people here because of X, Y, and Z, we are put in the position to take action. Now, in many cases, many cases, there is some room for, um, for compromise. But listen, the manager of the store said, this is what, what our rules are. I want them out. And unfortunately, police officers are put in positions many times where we have to make decisions that, that can meet public outcry. And in this case, look at what happened. So there were two mistakes here. That was the first mistake. But then the second mistake was the police chief came out very quickly and defended yes. the officer's actions. He said it was and all he had, by the book. He said it was all done by the book. They did what they were supposed to do. And then he had to eventually come back and retract the story. So, again, uh, in, in one of our chapters, which we see at the end of failing systems, we talk about the idea that systems are developed by city councils and mayors and governments, and then police officers are asked to do things that they may not want to do, but they're being told to do things by virtue of their job and their positions. And, and another prime example of that is how we deal with the mentally ill. Um, even right. now, one out of every four police shooting deaths involves someone who's mentally ill, and in many cases, People who are mentally ill don't have the capacity to follow commands or be compliant. And especially in cases when you go to touch people that have certain illnesses, they respond very differently. And 
you know, in, in many of these cases, people are being killed because because we don't have the training to deal with them. That's right. And so when you get a call like that, not a mentally ill person, but one that might be driven by some kind of racial animus, maybe uh, deep down, uh, something like suspicious male on the corner, blah, 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 uh, you have to go and check it out. But uh, what what is a police officer to do when the officer suspects that there might be something more here going on that maybe race is part of this? Right. Well, the one thing the one thing we bring to the table is that we're able to decipher things very quickly, you know, many times in our own communities or others, and that we're able to we're able to use some discretion. And, you know, you and I and I've been a police officer. I've been called to areas and, you know, the call was a suspicious black male. And I go to the corner and I see that there's a young man waiting at a bus stop. Well, in that case, many times I might not even get out of the car to speak to him, because if I see he's waiting for a bus waiting for a bus he has a book bag on and he's not creating a problem then maybe i clear the call but maybe i maybe i decide to get out of the car and just speak to him and say hello my name is officer or trooper or whoever and just get to know him a little bit and you may not even have to say to him that somebody called the police you may just say hey i'm i'm just going to get out and talk to people why not do it that way but everything doesn't have to be so intrusive what are you doing here i'm waiting for a bus all right do you have identification yes i do but what am i doing wrong and, and many times that's where things go wrong. Yeah, things can escalate from that point, yes. Right, right. What am I doing wrong? Why are you asking me for, for my identification? So um, these things do happen, and people, as you just uh, aptly pointed out, people are people call the police for all kinds of different th- reasons. And, you know, it all goes back to their deep-seated biases and, and, and racism and all these other isms that are out there. But uh, we don't have to act in a way that's offensive to people. We just don't have to do that. So not long ago, uh, Terrence Cunningham, he was then the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the IACP, he made a very public apology for wrongs that the police profession uh, had committed in the past, wrongs toward communities of color, particularly African Americans. The sort of long history of enforcing discriminatory laws, the damage done, and all the distrust that was fostered. We talked about that in an episode, episode 56, I think it was, with Chief Lou Deckmar of LaGrange, Georgia, who also made a, an apology in his police department for a lynching many years ago. When you heard about uh, the Cunningham IACP apology, what did you think? How did that hit you? Well, you know, I know uh, Chief Cunningham. I am a member of the IACP and Noble and other organizations. And Noble is the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, sir. I'm a member of both organizations, so I felt that at that point in time, given everything that was happening, that was more than an appropriate statement to make coming from the world's largest police executive organization. And and, and let's face it, Cunningham has been around a long time. For, For anyone to disagree with him doing that or disagree with his stance, to me, is morally irreprehensible in the United States, given what we have. Now, he did take a lot of heat. Because there were a lot of chiefs in, the, in that audience that That's didn't agree right. with, with him doing it. And I've spoken with him about that. But listen, either you're going to do right, right, or you're going to do wrong, wrong. He did the right thing, and it was the right thing to say. And it, you know what? It remains the right thing to say. Now, we'll see what the current – I do know the current chief, current head of the ICP, and I know, I've known him for a number of years, and I think he feels the same way. Uh, many times in law enforcement, though, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want people – to dislike what we do and what we say, but leaders rattle the boat and, you know, they shake up the system. That's what leaders are supposed to do. That's what leadership is sometimes, yes. 
So Absolutely. I noticed that your take on Black Lives Matter is quite different from what I hear from a lot of other police officers I know and have interviewed. Uh, many of the police uh, I talk to see Black Lives Matter as anti-police, but you don't seem to agree. What's your feeling about it? Where do you think it's, uh, it's coming from and what do you think it's doing? Right. Well, I think social media has had a lot to um, do with the perceptions of, of people on all sides of the house. And, you know, in my view, Black Lives Matter was necessary uh, when they were created. And it's no different than John Lewis and the other civil rights marchers who started uh, marching against civil rights abuses in the 60s. They were all students at the time. Right. You know, I just I just gave a speech at my alma mater a couple of weeks ago, and I implored the students not to sit idly by why, conti- why conditions deteriorate in the United States or anywhere. It took bravery then for students to sit in at Greensboro, and it took bravery for people to walk across the bridge in, in Selma, and most of those people were college-age students. So much, much similarly to Black Lives Matter, what they didn't have, well, they, they didn't have a social media platform. They didn't have communications. But now we have these platforms, and these young people use that platform to create a brand to push the issue, to bring attention. And if you think about it, this would not have been an international phenomenon without people that age that were adept at technology. Right. It really has boosted it out of orbit almost. Oh, my goodness. When you, when you think about the fact that people were protesting in Africa and London and Australia and France and Italy, they were protesting things that happened in the United States, right? So when you think about the reach of Black Lives Matter, now, what happens is, if you remember back when the uh, police officers were killed, uh, in Dallas, protecting oh, the course. Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. and and the individual who perpetrated that horrific crime against my brothers in blue, he had some allegiance to Black Lives Matter, and then people started saying, "Well, Black Lives Matter caused those murders." Well, I don't know if that's true or if it's not true. The, the individual was killed; they were never able to interview him. But you know, in my view, it doesn't make Black Lives Matter uh, anti-police. And as a matter of fact, in the book, we point out one of the chiefs, uh, Chris Mangus, down in tucson who actually embraced black lives matter to help get their message out to have more peaceful protests so there's a way that you can leverage the authority of 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 government meaning policing but also the passion of organized protests to get to a place where everyone's happy so how do you pair it up or compare it to uh, another very close phrase blue lives matter what is that about where is that coming from and how are they similar or different well, I, I think uh, I think one's necessary, quite frankly, and one isn't. Um, and, and, and I'll explain to you what I mean. Uh, for as long as I've been involved with law enforcement, I've never felt that my life didn't matter. As a matter of fact, everything that's ever been done to me or done with me has shown the opposite. And I've been treated with, with very much respect. We get, you know, free meals and discounts on issues and people treat you. People thank you for your service, you know. Saying that the criminal element doesn't like police is not saying that society at large doesn't like police. And I never felt that because I was a police officer, I wasn't special. In fact, I've always felt that because I had that badge, I was special. So I I felt from the very beginning to even come out and have to say that blue lives matter, too. I just felt like it was a response to the Black Lives Matter movement. I thought it was unnecessary. And I think it's unnecessary now. So as you look at your experiences as both a police officer and high-ranking official and your experiences as a black man, both at once, what do you think are the top couple of things that you'd like to see change in the next two, five, ten years? 
Right. I want to see more collaboration. You know, there are things communities can do to better engage police organizations. And an example of that is, you know, we talk about churches being the fabric of communities. Well, what's wrong having with having a uh, law enforcement or criminal justice ministry? So you have people that are closer to the precincts, closer to the officers, listening to the struggles and, and challenges they go through, but be connected, you know what I mean, in a meaningful uh-huh. way. The other thing I want people, what I'd like to see happen is better hiring recruitment practices nationwide. It's very hard with uh, government, state, city, local, and federal government. It's very hard to have national standards that apply to a department in Alabama and a department in New Jersey. It's very difficult to do that. But one thing we know for sure, when you have a better educated workforce, you may have problems and challenges, but they're different problems and challenges. So I'd like to see a place where you don't have police officers hired on the job at age 19 or 20. You know, the problems we're dealing with right now are very complex, and they need people with life experience. And you don't get life experience when you're uneducated and you're 20 years old and you're given a badge, a gun, and authority. Matthew Horace is a law enforcement and security expert and analyst, along with Ron Harris. He's the author of The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement, published in 2018 by Hachette. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Mr. Horace, thank you so much for being our guest. David, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. It up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Jason Pearl of New Britain, Connecticut. Lawyer Pearl had represented a particular client on several matters in the past, which is probably why that client hired Pearl to represent her in 2011 in a new unrelated dispute with her condominium association. Over fees, the association said that she owed. It's what a lot of people would do if you are sued. You might think first of retaining a lawyer you already know, with whom you already have a professional relationship. That's what this client did when she rehired Lawyer Pearl. The condo fees the client allegedly owed totaled about $22,000. But as the case went forward, Lawyer Pearl failed to tell his client that she would have to keep making payments even during the lawsuit or she would be at risk of foreclosure. So the client made no continuing payments and predictably she lost the property about $400,000 worth in foreclosure. Well, the next thing that happened was also predictable. The client sued Lawyer Pearl for malpractice in December of 2014, alleging that she had lost a substantial amount of equity in the condo due to that foreclosure. Well, no one likes being sued for malpractice, even if it seems pretty obvious that you uh, committed malpractice. And just six weeks after the filing of the malpractice suit, Lawyer Pearl went on the offensive, asking the court that his former client be declared, quote, unfit to testify due to her psychiatric history, medical commitment, conservatorship, and untruthfulness, close quote. And Lawyer Pearl attached to that motion the client's complete mental health records for not just the parties in the case to see, but for any member of the public to take a look at. 
it probably goes without saying, but the client had not given lawyer Pearl permission to spread her entire psychiatric history before the world. He only had these records because he had represented the client previously in those unrelated cases. Lawyer Pearl did not come out of this well. In an order issued August 7, 2018, a Connecticut Superior Court judge found that Lawyer Pearl had engaged in conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice when he released those records and that he had done this in retaliation for the malpractice suit. Out of spite, in other words. Lawyer Pearl has now been suspended from practice for two years and has to take some extra in-person ethics training. Considering that Lawyer Pearl has now been in practice since 1956 and suffered an unrelated 120-day suspension in 2013, maybe, just maybe, this would be the time to consider retirement. Just throwing that out there, feel free to ignore my suggestion if you don't think that's warranted, sir. That is lawyers behaving badly, and that closes another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news bonus items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that with anyone. Again, the number 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments. Or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389 or online, criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Chicago has seen police scandals for decades, from torturing suspects into confessions to the Laquan McDonald murder and cover-up. Our guest has combined journalism and human rights work to spur the city toward police reform. Has it worked? And what lies ahead for a city awash in homicides and distrust of the police? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at CriminalInjusticePodcast.com.